Hey there, Flow State Podcast listeners. It's your host, Monica here. Before we get into today's episode, I just wanted to share a review from our audience. If you have been listening to the podcast and are enjoying, please do leave us a review on your podcast listening app of choice and let us know what you've been enjoying, how you've been listening, how it's benefited you. All of this information is so exciting for us to hear as well as helps us reach more people, which if you've been around, you know our goal is to be able to provide this information as far and wide as possible. So today's review comes from Brie. Brie, thank you so much for leaving this. The review says, must listen. This is so amazing to have a podcast focused on women's mental and hormonal health. For someone who has struggled so much with endometriosis, and the diagnosis for three plus years being told it's an eating disorder causing low weight and heavy periods with a prescription to birth control automatically being their solution. I am glad there's a podcast to talk about hormonal health and how to regulate your body. XO. Brie, thank you so much. We are so happy that the information in our podcast has been helping you and making you feel less alone. Truly one of the huge parts of our mission. If you feel similar or you have something that you'd like to share with us, please do go ahead and leave a review. We're so excited to see what you have been enjoying about the podcast. Also, just as a reminder, before we dive into today's episode, the information that is shared on the Flow State podcast is not direct medical advice. If you are experiencing something out of the norm or you feel like you need some medical attention, please do reach out to your provider. Thanks so much. Let's dive in. Welcome back to the Flow State Podcast, where we are all about finding balance. We are your hosts. I'm Nora Candido. And Monica Groni. All right. Today is episode 10, which is going to be the final episode of our season. We're going to take a little break for the holidays and we'll be back in January. But today we have Mandy back with us. We have Mandy and Nora Maria's medical advisors, and today is a community Q&A. I'm so excited to do this episode because we get so many questions from our community, whether it's on Instagram, whether it is in our Maria Flow State group on Geneva, and we really want to take this opportunity to answer your questions. So Mandy, welcome back. Thanks for coming back with us today. We're so excited you're here. Glad to be here. And you have some smart people. They're asking super good questions. Yeah, I'm always so impressed with our community and I applaud people all the time when they are making informed decisions about supplements or just asking really good questions about their cycles. It means that they have awareness and like I say, like awareness and knowledge is power. And so kudos to all of you. To me, it's such a testament too that if these people are doing so much of their own research because that information isn't readily available to, right? Like they are being their own health advocates. They're really digging into this stuff and seeking those answers to these questions on their own, which is crazy. Like you shouldn't have to be the one navigating this on your own. But to me, when I hear these questions, I'm like, I know you're in the trenches trying to figure things out for yourself. And I'm so grateful that Maria has a community and this 
platform to even be able to answer some of those questions today. Yeah, for sure. Okay, I have a question myself before we dive into the community questions. Nora and Mandy were just showing me this finger thing. (laughs) If you're watching on YouTube, they'll show you right now. It's like, what is it? It looks like a little spring. It's an acupressure ring. And Nora was like, look what I got at this wellness retreat. And then I like pulled mine out that I was starting to fidget with. And it's like this pokey springy ring that is therapeutic. Okay. Do we know the benefits of this springy pokey ring? Tell us more. Yeah, it can help with like lymph and fluid movement. So especially for people with arthritis in their hands, particularly, it feels like a gentle compression with it is called like a spiky. (laughs) But it's really fun to play with too. I feel like not using a fidget spinner, but something kind of of the like for just to keep your hands busy. Yeah. And for me, I use it more as like a a nervous system thing. Like I feel like it's in a way like grounding and also like just helps me like brings me to the present, but I can still be doing other things. So it's just one of those things I I use it often when I'm working and I bring it on planes too. So it's just like sometimes I feel a bit like claustrophobic on planes. I'll just fidget with something to like stay in my body and stay like present moment. Mm, if you're a fidgeter, maybe you need one of these. I'm sure you can find it on Amazon. <laughs> Nora, what would they be called on Amazon? I got mine so long ago. Yeah, it's called a spiky acupuncture ring, I think. It has the word spiky in it. That's I think it's hysterical. I don't know about anybody else, but like when you got married and you start to play with your wedding bands and stuff, like this is a far better alternative because if this goes flying, no big deal, but you don't want your wedding rings to go flying. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to find a listing and put it in the show notes because that's super interesting. Okay, let's dive into the customer community Q&A section of today's podcast. Basically, how this is going to roll, I'm going to share the questions that came up and Nora and Mandy are going to fire away their responses. So first question, I don't have the names of the community members who ask these questions, but the question reads... In your most recent podcast, you guys quickly spoke on why you can't have melatonin while trying to conceive. Can I get more information on this? I see online that it can help egg health, but in high quantities can stop ovulation. Is that why? Yeah. So we were talking a little bit about circadian rhythm, and I talked about how important melatonin is for egg production and egg quality, and honestly, misspoke. So It's not about the trying to conceive period because that can be extremely beneficial for egg quality. It's when we're pregnant that we don't want to be taking melatonin. And again, this is super individualized. So this is not something that you want to just run and start supplementing melatonin because it is a hormone, right? This is the opposite of cortisol in our body. And even answering this question, I was doing a lot of research digging into it. And most of the studies are actually shown for IVF, so using fertility treatments and melatonin, but not many of those studies are just supplementing with melatonin alone. They were looking at combination with myo-inositol, folic acid, and melatonin. There weren't ones specifically on melatonin alone with a placebo group. So another really big thing that I was digging into this on is actually there's a huge connection between melatonin 
and serotonin production, and serotonin is made in the gut. So this like all circles back to if things are off in the gut, it's literally going to throw off a whole myriad of different outcomes. One being this melatonin, which can affect our circadian rhythm, which can affect the quality of our eggs. So this is something that might be recommended in that preconception period. Maybe you're taking this for a few months leading up to trying, but I personally would still feel safer if we were using it for a certain period of time before we are trying to conceive and obviously checking in with your personal provider, but not supplementing with melatonin, especially when you're pregnant. Mandy, do you have anything like to add to that too? Yeah, I think, you know, when we look at the benefits, I know you and I were talking about this offline, just the antioxidant benefits of the melatonin, and that helps just the overall egg quality, reducing oxidative stress. Think of that as like cellular rust inside the body. And so, you know, not melatonin is one of many, many things that can reduce that along with an abundance of plants in the diet or a variety of plants and fruits and veggies in the diet. But I think that is, you know, when you think about fertility, preparing your body for that, you know, melatonin might be one of those pieces. Yeah, that and it also helps with our detoxification. It also helps with our body's detoxification pathways. So mostly those antioxidant benefits, it actually enhances some other antioxidants as well. When I was looking into this even deeper, like glutathione, which is cool. And the recommendations too are taking this like almost two to three hours before bedtime if you are supplementing with it, even though it can have fast acting periods, which I thought was really interesting and wanting to space it at least an hour or two after meals as well. Oh, I would just add that people are pretty individual with how much melatonin they need. Um, And some people do better with more so like extended release or slow release melatonin. So, you know, where one person might benefit from, let's say, one milligram, there's other people who are taking three or six. And so with supplements, of course, we always want to do it wisely. So consult with like your practitioner on that and know that, you know, you could have a friend who's taking it who might need way more or less than you. So just to notice how your body and your sleep respond. Okay, that was a really thorough answer. Thank you both. Hopefully that answered our community members question. Moving on to the next question. This is something that Nora did answer on our Instagram, but I thought we could answer it again here in case anyone missed it. So the question reads, I'm going to read the beginning because it's a great testimonial. Just love when our customers send testimonials. So thank you. It says, hi, I just wanted to let you know, I've been taking Maria daily for about five months and my period cramps and symptoms overall have been so much better. Yes, we love that. The only thing I'm still struggling with is acne. It just starts to clear up and then immediately comes back. Do you have any ideas? Of course we do. (laughs) (laughs) We have all the ideas. (laughs) When I answered this for Instagram as well, I said, you know, I'm so happy to hear that you've seen such an improvement. And to me, that shows that your body is responding. It's receptive. That's really exciting. When I hear it sounds like it's in more of a cyclical pattern, to me, that still sounds like there's a hormonal connection. And depending on the location of acne is where we can sometimes associate different types or different causes for acne. So if it's more on like your cheek area, this is typically more associated with inflammation. And that's when I'm really thinking, okay, gut stuff, we need to make sure we're really balancing our blood sugar, we're reducing inflammation overall. 
If we're seeing it more in like the cheek area, the jaw area, and our lower chin, that it to me is more hormonal. So, and especially if you're seeing it in the cyclical nature. So again, definitely need to do a little bit more digging here to identify what your individual driver is for acne. For some individuals, it can be sensitivities to different foods that can also be a source of inflammation. So there are a lot of different tools that I use in my practice to really get to that root cause. It could be dysbiosis. It could be a yeast overgrowth. There are so many different drivers that can be the root of either that inflammation and in turn also throwing off more of that hormonal imbalance like we've talked about. Mandy, anything to add to that? Yeah, I would say, you know, we talk about the menstrual cycle being like the fifth vital sign. And in the same sense, like your skin is an outer sign of that inner health. And so 100% agree with what Nora is saying of look at how that acne is presenting and then dig deeper to look at the root cause from there. And I want to put it into context too, because some skin changes can be normal during, you know, even if the cycle is optimal. And I have a lot of clients sometimes who are overly concerned with, you know, a pimple or two popping up versus that's very, very different than what Nora is describing, where there's a lot of acne that comes up or, you know, it's presenting on the jaw and chin, or there's just a significant amount. Or I would especially pay attention if you're noticing on like shoulders and your back, which can also be more hormonal acne. But what happens is when the estrogen is really high in the first half of our cycle, it's really beneficial for our skin. And when those hormones drop, our skin starts to produce more oil and like the skin barrier becomes more permeable. So we might be slightly more prone to acne, but if it's a like pimple here and there, I wouldn't worry too much about it versus what we're talking about is the significant amount. And so I think that helps you, you know, put your effort into the right place when you're just thinking along the spectrum of skin health. Like if, if it's a significant issue monthly, maybe we, we could talk about some first steps. Should we go over like what to do next with acne? Yeah, send it. (laughs) Yeah. Nora, what's normally the first thing that you do? So again, for me, I really would want to ask some clarifiers. I would want to see where and when it is showing up. If it is in that cyclical pattern, it sounds, again, from this individual person, like it's coming and going. And just when it's about to clear up, then another one starts. So I would really want to see what that true pattern looks like. And then personally, you know, I... This is my bias. I start with a lot of the gut stuff, but I also am teaching the foundations. So the first thing that I teach all of my clients in both my individual and my group settings is, quote, how to eat because we're never really taught how to eat. Something I feel very passionately about. So this is really what I was referring to in learning how to balance blood sugar. So some tips we've talked about here as well, but I really like prioritizing we're eating our fiber first in our meal and each of our plate had should have a component of fiber, which is also going to be carbohydrates, a source of protein, and a source of fats at each mealtime. So anytime that we're eating. Other tips that I love for balancing our blood sugar is even going for a short walk before or after. After is ideal, um, but even before and after just makes our cells even more receptive to that energy being able to go in. So those are some big big things that I would want to work on. And then even skincare. (laughs) So You know, although there can be hormonal drivers and things, we really want to be mindful of our environment. And this is something that we're going to dig into in season two, talking all about endocrine disruptors and our environment. 
There are so many things that we can really clean up in our routine, especially that might just be contributing to that. So personally, I even noticed that I was using all of these drying products because I was getting this acne. It was salicylic daily, sometimes retinol. I combined tretonin and retinol in my brain and just all this drying was making my skin actually produce more oil. So I switched completely to a natural-based beauty company. It's called Coco Kind that I still use to this day. And it's all oil-based products. And my skin was so much happier because that moisturizing component was there that my body wasn't then overproducing all of this extra oil. So again, individualized, that was one piece of the puzzle that really helped my skin to change. But I want to take this kind of ground up foundational internal outside approach. But I say the same thing, Mandy. I love that. Like the skin is a reflection of what is going on in the inside. Awesome. Yeah. And I would say if it's a really stubborn, persistent issue that's not shifting, like as Nora is getting at underlying testing. So whether that's gut health or even evaluating for excess androgens or those male type hormones like testosterone and DHEA, and we'll get into that. We'll be talking about amenorrhea today, but you know, testing that and looking at that from this kind of root cause functional lens can be huge. And the other thing is some people have food triggers of that. And, you know, the most common being dairy and sugar. And so that can be a worthwhile exploration. And I would do that after doing what Nora said about balancing your plate and balancing blood sugar. Like that has to be first along with like that and nutrient support, like a high quality multivitamin that gives you zinc, which is super essential for skin health. And then, you know, do those things before you look at like eliminating any certain foods, but those can be two common culprits that will affect some people. I would definitely say even with my own journey with hormonal acne, like sugar was a huge, like something that I noticed such a difference with before I lived on my own, even in my early to mid twenties, I'd say like, I didn't pay attention to sugar and there's added sugars in so many things. And then I learned like a lot about added sugars and started to really pay attention. And I rarely get breakouts around my period now. And I used to get them always. My like chin here has scarring on it from hormonal acne and like sugar was a huge one for me. So that's cool to hear. Goes back to that inflammation response, right? Like we know sugar can be a driver for inflammation and throwing off our blood sugar. So yeah, and our gut health, <laughs> our gut health, <laughs> <exactly>. yes. <laughs> it's all connected. Yeah. And I think it's such a good, it is a good reminder, Nora, I'm so glad that, you know, you come at it from this perspective of everyone's an individual and it's, it is really hard to answer some of these questions without being able to dig in deeper to you as an individual. So just know if you're listening and you're like, oh, that really wasn't the answer I was hoping for. You know, I was hoping to really attack it with a solution. It's really hard to give individualized care in a group overarching setting. So hopefully that there are some tips coming out of this that you can hear or even just learn like, I need some individual support to really get to the root of my issue with this. So just kind of wanted to just have that as a disclaimer as well. Okay, well, since in that question, there was some talk about Maria, I thought I would ask this. Because this is a question that we get about our product, the PMS Elixir, our drinkable multivitamins super often, is can you take it any time during the day? And I'll share kind of our response for this question. And then maybe Mandy and Nora, if you have anything to add, 
um, that would be awesome. Our response is the biggest part of taking a multivitamin is consistency. So if you find that you are most likely to be consistent taking it in the morning, great. If you find that you're most likely to be consistent taking it at night, great. Midday, great. Our biggest parameters for taking the elixir is best taken with food, not to be taken within 30 minutes of drinking coffee. And personally, I like to add when I'm responding to customers on this question that I like taking it in the afternoon or evening just because it does have a significant amount of magnesium, which can have a calming effect. At the same time, it has B vitamins in it as well. And some people respond to B vitamins on the other spectrum where it makes them maybe a little bit more alert. And so it's really, again, an individualized answer. And I think that it's just best to kind of have it stack with something that you're going to do it every day. Do you guys have anything to add to that? I think, Nora, we should give her like an honorary dietitian badge right now, <laughs> because I think I would have answered in exactly the same way for consistency and habit stacking. And then, you know, if you take the elixir and you take it without food and you feel fine, I would also say that's okay. If you feel nauseous or, you know, anything like that, that can happen because of the zinc, the high quality zinc that's added to it, then you would want to take it with food. And everyone has a different sensitivity level to taking supplemental nutrients. So I would add, in my opinion, if you feel great on it away from a meal, like let's say you wanted to take it right before bed, I would personally say that's okay as long as it fits with the routine. Yeah, agreed. And thank you for the honorary badge. That means so much to me. (laughs) Okay, great. Moving on to our next question, we are diving into amenorrhea. I am hoping I'm saying this correct. So we had, and I practiced before this, and I'm still potentially saying it wrong, but that's okay. You got it. You nailed it. (laughs) We've had a lot of questions in our flow state community group on Geneva around amenorrhea. So we're going to kind of just run through those. There was this whole big thread over in the group, people asking first, maybe one of you, maybe just give the definition. What is amenorrhea? Sure. Yeah. So amenorrhea would be if you have an absent period after three months of time. So it doesn't include like a skip period or if it's been over three months and you were having periods before, and then you stopped three months ago, that would typically be amenorrhea. There's primary and secondary. So primary would mean you are a teenager and you never started your cycle, whereas secondary means you had a cycle and then it went missing for over three months. So that's the distinction. And we'll talk about and dig into how that's different from PCOS because there were some connected questions there. Great. Okay. So the question is, I haven't got my period in seven months and I don't know what to do anymore. I feel like I tried everything. I'm first just going to say, of course, we don't have follow-up questions here of what she's tried, but I think we can maybe go at this question of if someone has had a missing period for more than three months, what are some of the things that you can do? Yeah, in my opinion, we want to make sure that you are eating enough. You might even need to be eating in a surplus for your body to get back to a comfortable position where it says, I am safe. And I am able to expend extra energy to potentially create a human because that is what our whole cycle is about, right? It's not, we're designed literally to procreate, to make 
humans. So if our body is like, nope, we are not in a position, we don't have those available extra resources, it is going to inhibit our ovulation, which is the right main event that allows us to even conceive. And in turn, we may not get a cycle. You can have a period without having ovulation. I just want to clarify that here. So something to differentiate, but biggest thing is that you need to be eating enough. And with that same token, not over-exercising. So those are the two most common things that I see in my practice is that there's likely under-eating and maybe over-exercising taking place. What about you, Mandy? Yeah, if, if we're thinking of like amenorrhea specifically, and, and you'll find the term if anyone's reading online, hypothalamic amenorrhea, which is really distinct from PCOS or other reasons for the period being missing, yes, eating enough. And sometimes it's even even if you're eating enough calories compared to your activity levels and your metabolic needs, sometimes even just restricting carbohydrates specifically can be a factor. And I see this a lot either in people who are overly restricting carbs compared to what they need, or they're doing too intensive and intermittent fasting type of schedule that can like switch off the hypothalamus in the brain and tell your ovaries like, hey, not safe to ovulate here, like Nora was describing. So those are huge things. And I tell anyone who's exploring shifting their exercise and eating more rebalancing their diet, you got to give it some time. I found with clients that it will take at least three months, you know, if the period's been missing for quite a while, at least three months for that to come back and sometimes more. And then the other thing is we want to make sure, you know, if you're looking at, is it hypothalamic amenorrhea or is it something else? So maybe we could list out those things too, because we always want to, if your period's been gone for seven months, of course, make sure you're not pregnant, if that's a possibility, not to state the obvious, but that can happen. But making sure you're also checking in with your doctor or your OB, your OB doc to see if there's, there can be anatomical reasons, there can be estrogen deficiency. You want to distinguish, is it hypothalamic amenorrhea or PCOS or other things that could be going on? And I think that is where checking with your doctor and then partnering with a practitioner, even to get some labs done. And we can talk about what those would be, but that can help you make sure you're a tackling it from the right angle. I see a lot of times, I've even had clients that had PCOS, like really restricted their carbohydrates and did it for too long. And it turned into hypothalamic amenorrhea, which is interesting. So definitely a lot to be uncovered. And you, like I said, you want to make sure you're tackling it from the right angle by getting the right information from the get-go. Yeah. And when we speak to the hypothalamus too, just knowing like this is a portion within our brain that starts the signaling pathway from our hypothalamus to our pituitary to our ovaries. So that's what we talked about in that birth control episode. That communication pathway is shut off when we are on the pill. So if this is something, if you're coming off of birth control and you still haven't gotten your cycle, that's something also we want to investigate. And things that I recommend when we are going through that process, circle back to that episode. But a lot of that is helping that communication pathway to be restored. And that can be through a lot of vagus nerve supportive interventions and lifestyle changes that can be really helpful for just helping your brain to actually be able to efficiently communicate to your ovaries. And that signaling pathway also goes to your adrenals as well. So there's a couple, a lot of different endpoints there, but some really, really important things that are going to directly impact your cycle. Can you share real quick a couple of the things that helped those pathways? 
Yeah, so we talked about some cold showers that can really help to shock things. And then anything that's really vibrating in the throat area. So we were joking, yodeling, right? Humming, singing, even talking loudly, uh, gargling with water or with whatever solution you want. But anything that's going to stimulate. And then breath work, meditation, things that help to get you into that relaxed state is really helpful. But with that being said, like it is actually helpful to test this system. And that's why a little bit of stress coming from those cold showers is helpful because it's it's really brief periods of time, but that also helps to utilize that pathway. So those are some things I really like to incorporate. Awesome. Wow. So much information. Hopefully that that answered the community's question. I think there are a couple of other questions that were really similar. You know, someone asked, I'm six days overdue and I'm feeling a little worried. Could it be due to the gym? Which Mandy, I think you did, you know, cover in that if you've changed your exercise regimen or you're over-exercising, it definitely can prevent ovulation and create a delayed period for sure. Is that in point? Yeah, it certainly can happen. And I want to add that sometimes people assume that they have to be for their period to go missing, they have to be at like a certain level of leanness. Like let's say there's not like a magic rule in the body that when you hit 15% body fat that your period disappears. I have seen, you know, people who even if you're overweight or have a high body fat percentage versus lean, it has to do with how your body is perceiving the mismatch of like energy in versus energy out. And so everyone's going to be unique. And I think of it as I always educate on what I call the brain body bucket. Like you have this like finite capacity for stress. And if that bucket overfills, that's when your systems and your body start to shift. Like we're talking about with the menstruation and in that bucket goes stress from exercise, stress from under eating, lack of nutrients, inflammation, gut health, all these things. And so you want to think about even your timeline of what is adding to my bucket the most and what do I feel most ready to address? Because even if you don't have a lot of perceived mental emotional stress, maybe that coupled with poor sleep and diet and all these other things are creating the perfect storm. And so it really starts with one step at a time with what you're most ready to shift to overall be kinder to your body so it feels safe enough to menstruate. Yeah, I think that's such a good point too to remind everyone that it's perceived stress on your body. So if you are someone who has exercised regularly or been super active your whole life, that's not really like your body doesn't really perceive it as stress because it's normal. At least I'm speaking about myself kind of in this and that like I have personally, you know, 15 to 18% body fat and I've been like that my whole life. I have regular periods. So it is so individualized. There isn't a magic number. That means like you're going to have a period or not have a period. It's really about what your body is experiencing. And maybe you're starting a regimen that's much more aggressive than a prior regimen. And that puts a lot of added stress on the body. But then I mean, Nora, your personal experience of having to kind of cut a lot of your activity completely out for your hormones to find a balance, you know, and you'd been active your whole life. So it's so individualized. And if you haven't listened to that Nora's episode, all about that, about like, it was so good go back and listen. But I think just understanding that just because someone else got their body fat this low, and they still had normal periods doesn't mean that will be the case for you or the next person. I also want to call out, you know, a lot of other things that can fill that stress bucket. It's not quote easy, but we might search for physical things 
but sometimes it's addressing underlying traumas and adverse childhood events that happen that are also filling up your bucket, caring for a loved one, dealing with grief. Any of those things are also contributing and filling up that bucket on a daily basis if you're not dealing with them appropriately. And that's something I just want to call out too, is like, we can't out supplement those things. We can't outrun (laughs) a lot of those things. And we really have to do the deep work to help them because it's taking a toll on your physical body. And it might be playing a role in some of these things. It's not as simple as calories in, calories out, eating less, eating more, working out more or less, whatever. Just something I wanted to bring to light here too. Okay, so the next question around amenorrhea is the relationship between amenorrhea and osteoporosis. So someone asked, I would like to know about the risks of having amenorrhea related to osteoporosis and if it's possible and how to repair your bone density after. So maybe we just start by diving into what the relationship is between osteoporosis and amenorrhea. Yeah. And I think, so again, like that amenorrhea would be the missing cycle for over three months. And from what I uncovered, it seems like the risk to bone health starts when that period has been missing for over one year. There was a a study that looked at, and this actually looked at six months, low estrogen from amenorrhea for six months, where the bone density decreased to a similar level that you'd see like as far as like the impact of the first year of menopause when estrogen declines. So there definitely can be a relationship. And again, I think it comes back to the question of why aren't you ovulating? Why is your period missing? And this is where I would really make sure to differentiate and with your practitioner distinguish, is this a certain form of PCOS or is it truly hypothalamic amenorrhea? From what I've learned, the risk is more mild if the period is missing from PCOS. Not that we want PCOS that has other negative impacts, of course, but the bone loss would be greater from the amenorrhea specifically. So testing things, I'll share some of those markers I referenced earlier, looking at your LH and FSH, those hormone signals that Nora has educated on um, in other episodes, testing either your insulin levels or C-peptide along with your fasting glucose. And then I recommend if your period's been MIA, I would say looking at those androgens, DHEA, sulfate, it'll have an S at the end, total testosterone, free testosterone, something called sex hormone binding globulin. And I would also rule out high prolactin and thyroid issues. And I mean a full thyroid panel with all the markers, not just TSH, nor smiling because that's like a pet peeve when, they, when we don't get the full panel. And feel free to go back like and you know rewind and write these down if you want to talk with your doctor about getting those labs. And then it's really about how those, you know, making sure they're not just out in within the medical range, but within optimal. And there's ways to look at the ratios of these things. And so the LH and FSH will be very different if it's HA versus, uh, sorry, the hypothalamic amenorrhea versus the PCOS. Wow. Okay. My brain is like, so yeah, definitely rewind and listen to that back because. I was emailing, which lab should I get? So I want them to know. I don't even know what just happened, but Nora was giving the like, yes, okay symbol. So I think Mandy was nailing it. So did you cover, and sorry if I missed it, the part about like repairing bone density, or do you think that it's not even an issue because you would have had to have had a missed period for a year? Like, where are we with that? Yeah. If any of you have like 
read on Laura Bryden's blog, she like says every ovulation, I wrote it down because it's, I love it. Every ovulation is like a monthly deposit into the bank account of long-term health. And so, you know, the sooner we can figure out why you're not ovulating, the better. And that's going to reduce your long-term risk to the bones because that estrogen is super, super important. So you want to look at, you know, it may come back to you like we were talking about eating enough and balancing that with exercise levels. And then I would also look at taking some action and supporting like the bone growth and also from your bone, it's called bone resorption. So from it like breaking down, if your body needs those minerals, it's going to break down and, and give from your bones. And so those would be things like vitamin D, super, super important, vitamin K2, also really, really important. And even other things like lifting heavy things and lifting weights and that strong muscles equal stronger bones. And so even if your periods now, and we've been talking about over-exercise, I just want to bring that up because I don't want people to be afraid of exercise and afraid of strength training because that's going to be one of the best things you can do for your bones. But it may look like rather than doing it six days a week, it might look like three or four days with rest days in between and, you know, looking at honoring, you know, some of your energy shifts throughout your cycle so you're not overdoing it. But I don't want anyone scared to introduce that. And then even circadian rhythm, like how we're sleeping, our sleep hygiene can also impact our bones along with adequate protein and other things. But I think those are all things, even while you're fighting to get that period back, you can still support nutrients, support strength training and, you know, weight bearing exercise, and then just taking care of your body overall. So your body doesn't have to steal from your bones. Great. Wow. Super thorough. One of the questions that came up for me while we're talking about this And I'm sure some of our listeners have this question too, is, you know, we're talking about the effects of bone density and a lot of it comes from not ovulating or that estrogen uh, surge. Is that right? And if you are on a hormonal birth control for a long time and you're not ovulating and you're not getting your period, is that affecting bone density as well? From what I have read and seen in research, yes. The replacing with the synthetic estrogen and suppressing ovulation, you may bleed, but you're not ovulating. And so is that what you found, Nora, when you've looked at that or researched that? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So that's something definitely want to acknowledge to the other nutrition component that I would add is calcium. And it doesn't just have to come from dairy standpoint as well. Calcium is like the tightest regulated ion in our entire body. And it will pull it from our teeth, from our bones, if we don't have enough in our blood values. So that's what Mandy was talking about with like the resorption side of things. But a tablespoon of chia seeds has as much calcium in it as a glass of milk. So it doesn't just have to come from dairy sources, especially if this is something that you are trying to reduce for other reasons going on. But still a really important thing. I even like buying canned salmon that has the bone in and making like salmon burgers or a salmon salad, anything like that, we're actually going to get some really high amounts of calcium and sardines. And so that could be super beneficial for someone who is on a hormonal birth control and kind of experiencing some of that bone. I don't know what you said, the breaking down of the bone. (laughs) Yeah, just to another kind of (laughs) thing to be mindful of, of the side effects of any sort of hormonal birth control. Well, and I think oftentimes people look at Maria, like, you know, it's a PMS elixir. I would also add, like, even if you're on birth control to take that type of support, because you're getting 
you're getting some vitamin D, you're getting other nutrients that are depleted by birth control. For anyone listening who's on birth control, your B vitamins, your magnesium, your zinc, and you're still getting calcium support. And when I first started, you know, talking with Monica as an advisor, I love the amount of calcium that is put into the elixir too, because you do want to be careful not to over supplement or take excess amounts and you can only absorb so much at one time. So I think that's super important too. So, you know, even if someone has a period or is on birth control, still really important to have that nutrient support. Awesome. Thanks for sharing that, Mandy. That's super helpful. Okay. I think that we've dug through the amenorrhea questions. So hopefully we answered those for you all. One of the next questions that I have, Nora, I know you can help me with this one. This is, again, a little bit more on the product side. So Alexa asked, is there going to be another flavor? I love all the ingredients, but I'm just not a huge fan of the flavor, which I totally understand. You know, like some people don't like peanut butter or don't like chocolate. And I don't know where those people got their taste buds, but um, (laughs) we can't always love, you know, not everyone's going to love everything. So Nora, tell me, is there going to be another flavor? Oh, yeah. And it's delicious. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm really excited for it. Whenever it's happening. You guys are keeping secrets from me. <laughs> Mandy, I think we've told you about it. But Nora was with me when we went to our lab to do some playing around. And we did land on a new flavor. And yes, I mean, I love it. Nora loves it. Hopefully, You guys love it too. So stay tuned for that. That's just a little sneak preview that I thought I'd sneak in there today. (laughs) Mandy, we'll share it with you soon. (laughs) Yes. I actually, I like the original flavor because I don't like when things are super sweet. I like the more citrusy. So I'm actually oddly surprised at the amount of people who say it's really sweet, but I think some people like see tartness as sweet maybe. So we try to keep it more tart than sweet. That was like, honestly, my preference. So the citrus is a little bit higher. And then this coming flavor. Yeah, you'll just have to wait and see. It's good. (laughs) Okay, so we have a couple of questions left. Let's see if we can run through these. And these are for people who, well, there's varied questions here. Let's start with the first one. Okay, I have an IUD and I rarely bleed. Is it even possible for me to track my cycle? I would say it's going to look different because you know you have outside source of hormones, even though this is in an internal device, those hormones are still being, they're coming from an outside source. So I like tracking because I think it's helpful data. And if that's something that also makes you feel empowered to make a decision down the line, I don't think it's hurtful by any means, but you're not going to experience the same fluctuations as a menstruating person who is not on any sort of outside or exogenous types of hormones. So even like we've talked about, the bleed that you're getting is not a true period. It's a withdrawal bleed. You're not ovulating typically with most types of hormonal IUDs. There is some variation in these. And then I'll answer kind of the rest in the other, the subsequent questions, but Mandy, anything to add there? Yeah, I think what I've seen and read in various places is sometimes the first year on the IUD can be different than the subsequent years, depending on how long it's supposed to be in. And so you may find that you ovulate, you don't ovulate, or you ovulate sporadically, 
during that first year, and then you may get into more of a pattern. And so that is where I think the tracking can be helpful. And so it just, you have to be okay with it being good enough tracking because you won't get the bleed that signifies your day one. You want to maybe, you know, more notice like the nuances of your cycle. Like, are you noticing more of that like slippery, egg white, fertile, cervical mucus type of change? The mucus changes could be very helpful if ovulation is occurring. And even, you know, maybe go back to the episodes around the inner seasons of the menstrual cycle, you may notice like mental, emotional, spiritual shifts that are telling you which phase you're in. Like, I feel like even if I have kind of lost track of what cycle day I'm in, just from like how I'm interacting with the world, I have like, I can almost sense in my body where I am. And so that's where I think if you're okay with it not being picture perfect tracking where you know exactly which cycle day, but it's more intuitive, you still have the opportunity to check in with yourself. What are these cyclical shifts that I'm experiencing? And then the body signs too, like the cervical mucus would be one, or you could also consider doing basal body temperature tracking if you wanted to get a better sense. And there's plenty of apps out there for that too. Yeah, there's a lot of different types of IUDs and a lot of different combinations of the hormones. And even if you're using a non-hormonal, like the copper IUD. So all of these things, all these answers are really going to be dependent even on what type of IUD you're on. And like Mandy was saying, that first year can be different than year five if you're using a Mirena and you might start ovulating in year three, but you didn't ovulate in year one. So like there are so many nuances to these things and really understanding and knowing your personal device, I think is a really important takeaway here. Yeah. And trusting yourself. Most of my clients will say, I feel like I'm ovulating or they'll say, I feel like I'm not ovulating. I can tell that I'm not like start with that initial intuition of how you know your body and then track from there. If you need to bring in the temperature tracking or something else, I find most people like they think they know, and then they, you know, don't trust that initial just like sense of what their body is doing. So never ignore that, you know, you know, yourself. I love that. I love that you're always promoting trusting yourself, Mandy. It's so good. (laughs) <laughs> that was so hard for me for so long <laughs> I learned the hard way. yeah I've had to remind myself that since listening to your episode that that came out this week I was like yes remember trust yourself too so that's such a good reminder okay so kind of following up or I guess it's not related to birth control but the next question is Having one day per month where you literally can't do anything but sleep, is this normal? It's always the first day of maybe bleeding or before my period. Is that normal or a symptom of PMDD? The same person goes on to say, same question, but with sweaty, anxious sleep and highly vivid dreams. And then same question, but you might have to bleep me out or I'll just say pooping nonstop for a few days. So basically someone's experiencing pooping (laughs) right before their period, sweaty, anxious sleep, and just feeling like all they can do is sleep. On an IUD too. Yes. And they have an IUD because the IUD question came from this person as well. They're asking, is that normal or is this a symptom of PMDD? Yeah. I think it's one of these situations where I wish this person were on the podcast with us or we could be texting questions um, to get more information because 
I always look at, you know, think like we talked about with the acne on a spectrum, I would say feeling more fatigued, like you want to take a nap, you wish you could sleep in, you know, need some extra TLC, that sort of thing. 100% normal before your cycle and even desirable to follow that that need. If it is debilitating fatigue where you feel like you cannot get out of bed, you can't go to work, you can't, you know, take care of, you know, whatever responsibilities you would have, I would say that's not normal. And so we want to think about it that way where yes, cyclical shifts, but it shouldn't be taking you out. So I think as far as if it's PMDD or not, you would want to go back to listen to the episode where we talked about tracking your cycle and some of the other symptoms of PMDD to see when it pops up and how many days throughout your cycle. But if if it's just one day a month where those symptoms pop up, I would say that's not typical of PMDD. And of course, nothing we say here is diagnostic or rules anything out, but I would take a zoom out and take a bigger look. But with the vivid dreams and the, you know, sweaty, anxious sleep and those things, definitely worth like piecing all of that together and looking at how your body's responding to the hormonal fluctuations, which can happen with PMDD. But again, zoom out and look at your cycle overall and how many days you have those symptoms. For me, hearing a lot of these things, it sounds like a pretty large estrogen component and fluctuations happening here, especially with the sweaty and anxious sleep. And also that can play a role in the fatigue, but also with even going to the bathroom can be some, um, we'll talk about that a little bit more, but yeah, for me, that's something that I would want to support the body in making sure that we're regulating and being able to flush out those estrogens appropriately and see if it has an improvement on some of those outside symptoms. And yeah, if we can dig into the the pooping nonstop because Monica and I have talked about this in the past too, period poops and why. (laughs) I think we have to talk about period poops. I mean, we hear it a lot. There's a lot of memes on Instagram reels about period poops and I experience looser stools before my period and I consider it normal, but yeah, why don't the experts say their opinions on the period poops? (laughs) I first want to say I have an idea for this listener. You can also use your poop rhythms to track your cyclical rhythms. If you're not getting the bleed, (laughs) you're getting a different type of signal. But, you know, maybe what we, we should look at again is like what's normal, what's not. And I think, you know, if you're having loose, slightly looser or softer stools more frequent, bowel movements, that could be totally normal. Your body is releasing what are called prostaglandins that make your uterus contract and get everything out. If there is a ton of inflammation, you can have a different type of prostaglandin, which is going to make that like a little bit more fierce and erratic, that contraction and going to cause pain and like more so on the line of diarrhea. So softer stools, more frequent, normal diarrhea, where it's like really like many, many times a day, and it's either watery or super, super loose stools, I would say not normal. And we want to look at inflammation as a, as a root cause. Yeah. It's things that I recommend too, like making sure we're really focusing on a lot of those omega threes in the week leading up to our cycle, that's going to help with the prostaglandin. So we can't stop that. Like it's a natural process, but it is an inflammatory process. So I talk about our reproductive organs and our colon, our where our large bowel is, our next door neighbors. So when there's that contracting motion from the prostaglandins, it is signaling and going to cause 
some loser stools to happen. So things that I like in addition to eating those omega-3s, which can come from salmon, they can come from walnuts, they can come from seeds in that week leading up. If you're experiencing a lot of looser stools, thinking about incorporating some oatmeal. That's gonna be a great binding fiber to help slow down the transit time, meaning things are going to stay inside a little bit longer and helps to bulk up the stool naturally. Even some apple for some people or banana is can tend to be a little bit more binding because of the specific type of fiber and starch in there that helps to slow things down a little bit. So if you know that this is a common thing for you, that might be, okay, we are doing overnight oats. It's right and ready to go in the morning. I don't even have to think about it. It's an easy thing to add in. The question was uh, about how to treat ovarian cysts naturally. And I would just say, again, like this is something that I see often, especially if we are coming off of birth control or an IUD. I have had personally this experience. When I had an IUD, I was experiencing ovarian cysts. Um, But this is something where some can be natural and some do not, they go away on their own. But again, to me, this is, we really need to be monitoring your hormones and seeing what is driving that, which is typically, again, another estrogen-driven process that can be growing those follicles and something that we can definitely work through for sure. Mandy, anything to add on the ovarian cyst treatment? Nope, I agree. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. This is going to be one of your longer answers because I feel like you could totally make each of these questions like their own episode. They're all so good. Yeah, so many great community questions. And hopefully everyone listening today learned something for themselves. Or if you have a question that wasn't answered, you can always ask us questions through our Instagram or in the Flow State group on Geneva. So feel free to come by and ask, and we will do our best to get those answered for you. We love receiving your questions. Truly, it's a huge part of our mission is to just provide education and be able to support you through your hormonal journey. So do not be scared to ask. As you see, there's lots and lots of your peers and other people asking questions. So all of us are going to be way better off if we just ask. Never fear a question. A huge thanks to both Nora and Mandy. They put in serious work getting answers to these questions. So thank you both so, so much. Anything to add before we sign off, ladies? No, keep them coming. Keep the questions coming. This is, it's so helpful. Yeah. It's always great to hear too what people are struggling with so that we can hopefully develop more solutions for you and continue to provide the best education that we can. So thanks everyone for tuning in today. If you learned something in today's episode, please don't hesitate to leave a review or come on over to Instagram and let us know your takeaways. And we will see you in January for more of the Flow State podcast. Thanks for tuning in everyone. Bye for now. Bye.